be able to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who weren't aware, Pastor Don is traveling with the group over in Israel, and it uh, sounds like they've had a great trip so far, so we're thankful for that. You know, as Pastor Don was preaching last week, I was reminded of the ever-present temptation to think of Jesus in ways other than what the Bible portrays him. So if you remember last week, uh, we saw Jesus on trial before the Jewish leaders, and Pastor Don drew a clear contrast between all of the false witnesses, the many false witnesses who bore testimony against him, and Jesus who alone was the true testimony about God and about himself. As I thought about that, it seems to me that when it comes to being a Christian or living the Christian life, that it ultimately boils down to what does the Bible say? The truth is what the Bible says about God, about Jesus, about ourselves, about how we ought to live, and about the world we live in. So the precursor then to being a Christian is to have a biblical understanding of Jesus. And that includes what the whole Bible says about him. Now since for the last couple of weeks we've seen Jesus in the midst of his suffering, and when Pastor Don returns, we're going to have the opportunity to resume uh, seeing Jesus as he uh, moves closer and closer to the cross. But I wanted to take just a, a minute this morning and think about Jesus as he is now in glory. And so our passage is going to be Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. So if you want to turn there. I think it's helpful to think of Jesus as he is now because that'll give us perspective as we continue to see him suffer moving towards the cross. A couple of quick notes on the book of Revelation. Some of you have probably read it before or maybe watched a movie about it or something related to that. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to point out. First, there are two different styles of writing in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's the one that most people are familiar with, which is the uh, poetry, the vivid imagery. You see dragons and beasts and everything else. And that really resembles what you would read in a book of the Old Testament, one of the prophets maybe, something along those lines. But we also see uh, very straightforward passages. It's also a letter written to a group of churches. So if you've read New Testament letters by Peter or Paul, uh, there are parts of Revelation that sound very similar to what you would read there. And so John has written this letter to a group of Christians who are in the midst of suffering and persecution. So it was written during the first century uh, to churches in the Roman Empire where Christianity was not an approved religion. And so they faced persecution for their faith. And it's actually written in chapter 2 about one man named Antipas who was killed for being a faithful witness to the truth about Jesus. And so for those who testify to the truth about Jesus and are ultimately, uh, either they suffer or imprisoned or even killed for their faith, that can cause you to ask some questions and to doubt. You say, God, I'm, I'm telling the truth about who you are. Why is this happening to me? So Revelation pulls back the curtain, so to speak, and it allows those suffering, persecuted Christians to see God as he is now, to see Christ seated at his right hand, and it gives them hope. Uh, it gives them hope that God is sovereign over all that's going on, and one day he's going to bring all of this craziness to its conclusion. In fact, I read a, a book by a Chinese pastor named Brother Yoon several years ago, and uh, the book is essentially a biography of his, and he was a pastor for several years and suffered terrible persecution, uh, was imprisoned many times, was beaten, ultimately forced into exile out of the country where he was from. 
And as I looked at some of his sermons, some of his teaching over the years, a lot of it came from the book of Revelation. Now, here's a man who's been persecuted in, well, the 20th century, and the book of Revelation provided great comfort to him in the midst of his suffering, and he was able to share that with his congregation. So the two things we want to look for uh, are a big view of a sovereign God and then how that vision of God brings comfort to those who are suffering in the here and now. So I'm going to read uh, verses 4 through 8, and you can feel free to follow along. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, if you're following along, there's an insert uh, in the worship folder this morning that has just the, the brief outline there. We're going to see three things, the grace of God, the glory of God, and the coming of God. To begin with the grace of God, he says, grace and peace to you. Now, again, we talked about the two different styles of writing. Uh, if you've read other New Testament letters, most of them start out very similar to this, this passage right here, grace and peace to you. So to the church of Corinth or Colossae or whoever he's writing to, he gives a greeting of sorts. And this would have been a common greeting of the time. But it's interesting because I think the biblical writers actually import a little more weight and a little more theological uh, undertone to the meaning of those words. So grace would be favor or treatment from God that we don't deserve. So God treats us well, better than we deserve. That's what grace is. And peace, especially in this context, writing to suffering, persecuted Christians, was a sort of quietness of soul, uh, a calmness, a, an assurance that God was in control and that all would ultimately be made right. Uh, sort of the Hebrew idea of shalom, if you're familiar with that term. That's what peace would have been. But as rich as the meaning of those words are, I think John is actually hinting at a different point here in Revelation 1. He's not trying to expound what the meaning of the words are. He's trying to say how grace and peace come to us. How is it that we receive grace and peace? And so he says it comes from God. But he doesn't just say God, or he doesn't even just say the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. He gives very specific explanations of each person of the Trinity. And it'll be interesting as we see the description of the person actually has implications for how grace and peace come to us. That's true for us even today. And so the first description he gives, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now this is a, a description of God the Father. And it's interesting because when you read it carefully, who is, who was, and who is to come, they're a bit out of order. Normally when you see this formula, it's who was, who is, and is to come. It follows a chronology of sorts. But John mixes the order a bit, and I think there's a reason for that. 
So to begin with the, the second two, who was and who is to come. So this implies, right, that God, the Father, has no beginning and he has no end. Okay? Nothing came before him and nothing will come after him. He is before all things and he will be into eternity. And he is on the throne. Nothing and nobody can thwart his purposes. If you're familiar with Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If no one gives to him anything because he doesn't need anything, and no one controls his future so that he needs to appease them, then what he wants to accomplish will be accomplished in eternity past and eternity future. So that's sort of a, a brief description of who was and who is to come. But he gives emphasis to the one who is in the present. Now, this is actually a reference to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And in the insert you have, I've listed the Old Testament references that go along with this passage. But if you remember uh, that scene, maybe you've not read the passage, but probably know the story. Moses is on a mountain and he sees a bush burning and God speaks to him from the bush. And when Moses is talking with God and God tells him to go back to Egypt, he says, well, how are they going to know who sent me? And he said, tell them I am sent you. And so there's a few different times you see the one who is, who exists, who needs nothing or nobody. He's unto himself. That is who God the Father is. And it means he's on the throne right now. As we speak at 1015 this Sunday morning, God is on the throne. It's interesting because some people have adopted this view of God that he's just sort of the, the grand watchmaker or clockmaker. And he made all the parts and he put all the gears in place and he wound it up and let it go. And ever since then, he's just kind of sitting back on his throne, not really invested in what's going on day to day. But to say that grace and peace come from the one who is, that means he is right now on the throne. And I think he, John emphasizes that point because the people that he was writing to in the first century, they weren't suffering in eternity past or eternity future. They were suffering in the present. They needed to know God is on the throne right now. And interestingly enough, those of us in the 21st century are those who suffer in the present and face trials in the present. And we are among those who need to know that God is on the throne. How gracious it is and what peace it brings to a frustrated and weary soul to know that God is on the throne even now. Do you believe that? Grace and peace are at stake whether or not you believe that this morning. But grace and peace come not only from God the Father, but also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, okay? And uh, I could get into to more of the detail in a minute, but for those of you who have an NIV in front of you, there's actually a footnote there that says it could also refer to the sevenfold spirit. Now, this is where we get into some of the symbolism, right? The, the poetry, the imagery. So seven is a, a number that implies completeness or fullness, okay? So there's a sense in which the spirit is full of God's glory and power. But I think it also corresponds to the people that he's addressed this letter to. So John has addressed the letter to the seven churches, and he's saying from the seven spirits come grace and peace. And so there's, there's a sense in which God the Father is in heaven on the throne, but the spirit is the one who is present among each of the churches. And that'll actually come out in later chapters if you continue reading in the book of Revelation. The Spirit is the one who ministers in the midst of God's people. And he also says that the spirits are before his throne. 
So again, we get the image, right? Think of the throne room of heaven. And God the Father is seated there. Jesus is seated at his right hand. The spirits are before the throne. And before the throne is the image of the one who goes and does the will of the one who's seated on the throne. So that the spirit is before the throne means the spirit is intimately at work in the lives of Christians even today. So grace and peace don't just come from far away. They don't just come from heaven, but it comes from right in our midst as the Holy Spirit ministers among us. But there's more grace and peace. And here's the main event, so to speak. God the Son, Jesus Christ, who's given a a threefold description. Grace and peace come to us because we know that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Now again, this is Uh, One of the reasons I chose this passage is because it reflects what Pastor Don talked about last week. Jesus was the one, the only one, who perfectly represented God on earth in thought, in speech, in action, in every way. You want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. That's how we know who God is is as as we come to know Jesus Christ. So we could ask ourselves something we want to know about God. Does he care for the disenfranchised? Well, Jesus did, so yes. Does God control the fabric of nature, the wind and the waves, the bread and the water? Jesus did, so yes. Does God heal the sick and raise the dead? Jesus did, so yes. Does God want me to stop living for myself and for the treasures of this world and learn to love him supremely and love my neighbor? Jesus did, so yes. Is God patient and long-suffering, willing to bear with his people despite their repeated and indwelling sin? Jesus did, so yes. Does God identify with the suffering of his people? We've already seen it the last couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll see it again next week. Jesus came and identified with our sufferings to the infinite degree, to a degree that you and I will never have to experience if we've trusted Christ. Jesus identified with our sufferings, and so does God. Does God want you to know that he loves you and would sacrifice his own son so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be reunited with him forever? Yes. If we want to know who God is, we have to look to Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the only one who testifies to the absolute truth about God. And yet when we think about Jesus' witness, what happened to him? How was he treated as a result of being a witness? Well, we saw last week he was literally on trial. He was a witness at his own trial. And he gave this testimony about who he is and about his relationship to God. And it led directly to his execution. I mentioned briefly Antipas in chapter 2, verse 13 of Revelation. Antipas is described as another faithful witness who told the truth about Jesus and he was killed because of it. So when we think about our own role to be a faithful witness to the truth about Jesus, it's going to cost us something, right? It's not going to come without objection. It's not going to come without resistance. But telling the truth about Jesus will gain a greater reward than the cost would ever be. Even if it cost you your life, it would be worth it because God gives more grace and peace. Not only is Jesus the faithful witness, but he's the firstborn from the dead, as it says. So Jesus' testimony led directly to his death. He testified, he kept it quiet, as Pastor Don mentioned, he kept it quiet for a long time. He said, don't tell anybody who I am. But then finally, he comes out with the most bold statement that he's made to any public setting 
He makes a bold statement. He says, I am the Messiah, and I'm coming with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see me. The most bold statement he can make, the most bold testimony he can make, and it led directly to his execution. But that's not the end of the story, and it won't be for us either. Maybe you're, you're here and you face objections and persecution because of the testimony about Jesus, telling the truth about who Jesus is. But even if it costs us our life, we can know because of the promise that he's made us that we too will rise from the dead. It says here that he's the firstborn. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was the first to rise from the dead. Uh, we saw he raised Lazarus from the dead, for instance. But he is the first one to come back from the dead, never to die again. And as the firstborn, he's the firstborn among many. Many who are faithful witnesses to the truth about Jesus will again rise from the dead. That's the hope that we have. But we have to trust the promise to get there. But trusting that promise and knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead, that is what brings grace and peace. But there's again more. Not only is he the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know the kings of the earth, these are not good people. These are not benevolent kings. These are wicked people. In fact, the image that's most often used associated with them is they've committed sexual immorality. Now, that's a, an image given to demonstrate the spiritual condition. Okay? They've committed sexual immorality in that they've gone and worshipped other gods. Most of you are aware in this age of, of mass media, you know who the, the kings of the earth are today. And you know that there's a kind of uh, worship of self or worship of another religion or worship of all kinds of other things. The most powerful people on earth tend to not worship God as he is. And so that's a description of who these people are. And the people in the first century uh, would have known exactly who he's talking about. In the very end of the book, the kings of the earth are the ones who join forces with the beast, and they're going to make war against God as if they can somehow overthrow God on his throne. And it's interesting because if you read any of the martyr stories from the first century, you know that the people that were doing the executions, the people that were giving the orders and carrying them out, they're not described in pleasant terms. They're described as beasts, these people that were persecuting God's people on earth. But grace and peace come in knowing that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, right? They don't hold the ultimate authority over me. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can not only kill the body, but throw body and soul into hell, right? There's an ultimate authority that rests with Jesus that no human authority can come close to. So grace and peace come in knowing that we don't need to fear the people that might persecute us. And so as we think about grace and peace, we ought not look for those things in places and in people that can't really provide them. Right? So many people are, are looking for all kinds of ways to be treated well. God treats you well. That's what grace is. And it comes through knowing who Jesus is. Right? And he brings peace. Right? He brings a, a life free from the anxiety of living in a fallen world, but it comes with knowing who he is. We can't just let Jesus be, you know, some, somebody else's problem. We have to know Jesus, and we have to want, him, want to know him more and more, and as we do, that will bring grace and peace. 
And then as we extend grace and peace to one another, let it begin and end with the character of God. You know, I, I, I understand. I'm, I'm right there with you where when somebody's going through a difficult time, they're suffering in some capacity, it can be hard to find the words that will bring comfort. But we have assurances in Scripture that to those who believe, who have trusted the promises of God, who have committed themselves in allegiance to Christ, that these words will bring grace and peace. We need to trust that. We need to remind people of the character of God. But not only do we see the grace of God, we see the glory of God. And it's almost as if, as John's writing this, he's writing about Jesus and he's thinking about him. Now, John was an apostle. He was one of Jesus' disciples who spent a lot of time with him. And it's like as he's writing all this truth about who Jesus is, he just gets caught up. He gets caught up in himself. And so he begins this doxology in the middle of verse 5. This is the glory of God. So the Greek word for glory is doxa. So that's where we get doxology. You'll see we're singing it after the sermon here. And we sing doxology because we give glory to Christ for who he is. So you've heard of other doxologies. The end of the book of Jude is one that's more common. Um, Just to give you a brief understanding of how doxology works. Doxology gives a description of someone's accomplishments. And then based on that description, they attribute to the person the character traits that would have been necessary to accomplish those things. So to give you an example uh, of a different kind of doxology, we're in the middle of March Madness, if you're a, a basketball fan, okay? So you could say a doxology to the winning team could be to the team that wins the championship and destroys its opponents, and all of that, to them belong uh, athleticism, and discipline, and a good strategy, and this, that, and the other. That's an example of another kind of doxology. You state what they've done, and then you state what must have been true of them in order to accomplish that. And so that's essentially how this doxology works. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. So to think about what Jesus has accomplished, right? He's still talking about Jesus. He's talked about the glorious nature of who he is. And now he's talking about the glorious nature of what he has done on our behalf. The first thing he says is the one who loves us. That's a very brief statement. doesn't give a lot of explanation. But when, when, when you think about what love is, what perfect love is, Perfect love is a love that acts on behalf of the beloved, right? They do something for the one that they love. So we think about Jesus who did something on our behalf, who demonstrated his love. While we were wicked sinners, he died for us. That's a demonstration of perfect love, and Jesus has done that for us. And he is the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now this really has sort of a a dual meaning there. And I think he's doing that on purpose. It's poetry, right? He's freed us from our sins by his blood. That means he's freed us in the sense that we were once slaves to sin. If you heard Pastor Doug read from Psalm 51, from the time we were in the womb, we were in sin. Right? We didn't care about God. That's really the core of what sin is. We don't care about God. Our day-to-day lives are not impacted by him. We certainly don't want to uh, sacrifice our own agenda for his sake. We don't want to give him the glory that he deserves. We don't want to obey his commands. All of those things. 
And until we become Christians, until we submit to what the Bible says, because that's how God commands us, he commands us through the Bible, until we willingly submit to that, we can do nothing but sin. We are slaves to sin. But because Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished a victory over that. You you and I are helpless on our own, but real power is to be able to totally change a person's course of living, to totally change what drives their thinking and what makes their decisions. But that's the kind of power that Jesus has. He's done that for us. He's freed us from the bondage and slavery to sin. But he's also freed us from the punishment that we, that we were supposed to get because of our sin. Because of our sin, we were supposed to face the wrath of God. And if you read the rest of the book of Revelation, a lot of the vivid imagery is a description of the wrath of God that is coming on the world because at long last, for too long, the world has been indifferent, antagonistic towards God. They don't want anything to do with him, and when they're confronted by him, they do whatever they can to get rid of him. But the wrath of God is coming for those who are indifferent towards God. And he's freed us from that. He's freed us so that Christians don't face that kind of condemnation. That's what God has done for us in Christ. And finally, he's the one who has made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. Again, another Old Testament reference. The book is filled with Old Testament references if you read through the book of Revelation. This particular uh, reference uh, that he has made us to be a kingdom and priests comes from Exodus chapter 19. I'll just read that for you. This is God speaking to the people of Israel. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? There's something special about this designation of being a kingdom and priest. So what kind of kingdom is he talking about? Well, the first is rather self-evident. The first is talking about living with Jesus as our king. So Jesus communicates to us through the Bible, and he tells us about what the world is like and how we should live in it and uh, how we should behave, things like that. And as we obey that, we're living with Jesus as our king. So that's one way. The other way is that we live with Jesus as kings. Okay? Now, this is the more mysterious thing, but it's in Scripture And we can't necessarily see it readily, but because it's in Scripture, we believe it by faith that when we trust Christ, God has raised us up into the heavenly places. That's Colossians chapter 3. He's raised us up to be with Christ and to rule with him. So how does that work? Well, it's mysterious to some extent. You can't know exactly how it works. But we know this. If Jesus rules by his word and by his spirit, then we know that as we are indwelt with the Spirit, as we communicate the word, the gospel, to one another, and as we communicate it honestly to ourselves, we have a kind of authority that we didn't have before. So when we think about being kings with Jesus, that means we have authority over sin, right? It's akin to the being freed from the power of sin, right? To be a king means I can reign over sin in my life through Jesus, right? He's raised me up so I can do that. He's made me a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as Adam was supposed to reign over creation as sort of God's subordinate, but a king in his own right over creation, 
So in the new creation, you and I have power, real power, to stop sinning, to turn from sin, and to trust Christ. That's real power. It's already begun. We reign with him as kings. But we're also, it says, priests. Now, when you think of the Old Testament, uh, priests would have had a couple of things going for them. One, they, they had access to God that others didn't have. But the access was very limited. Okay, so of all the tribes of Israel, there's 12 tribes in Israel, only one tribe was given the designation to be priests. And of that one tribe, only one per year was chosen to be the high priest. And that one person out of that one tribe was only allowed to really go into God's presence one day per year. And he had to make sacrifice for atonement for the sins of the people. So that was one major aspect of the priesthood in the Old Testament. But the priests also ministered to God on behalf of the people. They interceded for the other people in the nation to God. So they would offer sacrifices to God. So what does it mean that in Christ God has made us priests? Well, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, all Christians have access to God. Again, we think about so many people in the world think God is just so distant from them. They have no knowledge of him. They, they can't enter his presence through prayer and through singing, and they can't enter his presence as they come to the word of God. So many people don't have that privilege, but as Christians, we do. We have the ability to access God, right? Because Jesus is our high priest, we can pray confidently to him, knowing that we have that kind of access. And as Christians, we're called to minister to God on behalf of others. Are we really interceding for the people of the world? The church is the only hope of the world. The church is where the Bible is, is preached, where it's rightly interpreted, hopefully. Okay? The church is where uh, people have access to God, where we gather to worship God. There is no salvation outside the church. Not in the sense that the church somehow administers salvation, but the, those who are saved gather in the church. And so the church is the only hope of the world. Are we interceding for those outside? Are we interceding for those who have no knowledge of God? As priests, that's part of our role. And because God has given us this great privilege of ruling with him and ministering before him, we give him glory. We ascribe to him glory and power. What does it mean to ascribe him glory? Well, it means we say it over and over again. Right? When you think of glory in, in other contexts, you think of renown. You think of someone who is well-known, who is well-respected, highly esteemed, those kinds of things. That's what glory is. Do we highly esteem Jesus? Do we talk about him with frequency? Do we talk about him with joy? Do we talk about him and tell the truth about him to our neighbors? Those kinds of things. That's giving glory to God. As we do things that are obedient to his word, simply because they're obedient to his word, that gives glory to God. As we persevere in faith in the midst of suffering, that gives glory to God. All of these things, over and over, as we repeatedly come to church and gather to sing his praises, that gives glory to God. It makes him known, at least even to the people in this room. But not only do we ascribe glory, that's part of what a doxology is, but a doxology is also prescribing it or exhorting, admonishing others to do the same. So you say, to him be glory. That's not just me giving him glory. You need to do it too. All of us need to do it. We all need to give glory to Jesus for all that he's done. 
And as we'll see in a minute, everyone will give glory to Jesus, whether now, voluntarily, or later, under compulsion. Because he's coming back, verses 7 and 8. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Jesus is coming back on the clouds. Again, another reference to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. I won't read it for you. But basically what he's saying is he's coming back and everybody's going to know who Jesus is one day. Everybody's going to see him. No one will escape. Everyone will be held accountable for what they've done and how they've chosen to relate to Jesus. And when he comes, not only will every eye see him, but all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. And again, there's two kinds of mourning, aren't there? There's the kind of mourning for our sin. As we read Psalm 51 earlier, I'd encourage you to read it over again. There's a kind of mourning that expresses a genuine sorrow for sin. When Jesus comes back, we're going to see him. He was actually pierced. You'll see the imprints in his hands from where he died for you. And for the Christian who is truly repentant, there will be mourning because we'll recognize that it's our sin that caused that. But it will be a godly sorrow that will ultimately lead to joy when he wipes every tear away. That's one kind of mourning. But there will be another kind of mourning. And this will be those who will finally realize that their indifference and antagonization of Jesus has been wrong all along. There will be a lot of people mourning on that day because they'll know that their life has been contrary to the will of God. And we think there will be many more in this latter category. Matthew chapter 7 tells us that there are many who are on the road to destruction and only few who are on the, on the road to life. If you're here today, don't be in the second group. If you see him today, you don't see him physically yet. He's coming one day and you will see him physically. But if you see him by faith, if you recognize that what this book says about him is true, don't be in that second group. If you recognize that it's been too long living for yourself and it's time to turn from that way of living, to stop sinning and to trust him, to trust the promises that if you obey his covenant, obey the words that he said in this book, he'll forgive your sins. You don't have to come to him as a perfect person. He'll forgive your sins. You talked about that already. If you believe that that's true, if you believe that he's coming again and he's going to give us resurrection bodies, never to die again, don't be in the second group. Don't be among those people who mourn because you recognize that you were wrong. Make today the day that you decide to turn from your sin, to receive the forgiveness that Christ offers, and to experience the freedom from slavery that right now you experience. The choice is yours. Glorify him today with us joyfully or glorify him later, but everyone will glorify him on that day. And when he comes, what does he say? Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He reiterates verse 4. It's an echo again of Exodus chapter 3, Moses encountering the burning bush. If you remember how the story ends with Moses, God tells Moses to go back to Egypt, and Moses is afraid, probably rightly so, right? By a logical calculation, there was a lot of threat, a lot of risk there. 
He said, I'm not eloquent. I'm not, the, I'm not your man. I'm not the one who's supposed to do this. But God ultimately says, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. Our lives are not ultimately about us. They're ultimately about God to testify to his glory and grace. So whether you're standing before Jesus as the judge on the last day when he returns, whether you're standing before any human authority here on earth, no matter their position, remember it's not about you, it's about Christ. Whether you're experiencing terrible, unexplainable suffering, or whether you're experiencing the most joyful of seasons, remember it's not about you, it's about Christ. Today, let us turn our eyes to Jesus And as we behold him, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and glorious God. Father, help us to see you this morning, high and lifted up on the throne of heaven, sovereign over all the things that are going on in this crazy world. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus, his loving and gracious face towards us. Father, help us to recognize that our sin does not have to mean eternal separation from you. We have the opportunity this morning to turn once again and to trust the promises and to swear allegiance to Christ. Let that be true of us today and let it all be for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.